Welcome to the Perp Web Podcast, hosted by Joe Bosch. Uh, my case today, um, not as um, disastrous as Mike's uh, cases. The guy died. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. So it's pretty disastrous. It's pretty disastrous. Um, so, you know, my case could, can be difficult if you, you know, aren't prepared to, you know, troubleshoot and do things. But as perfusionists, that's what we have to do, right? We have to be ready to take charge and um, think fast and um, try to find out what the problem is and solve the problem. Yeah, and I was with you on. We were together we were, we on were this together. case. We were together. And, uh, you know, and, that, and that's well and good if you have a surgeon who will actually listen to you. Absolutely. In this case, we did not. So I'll let you go ahead and, and continue and, you with know, that. That's kind of a, a thing where, you know, you have to, you know, know what you're talking about and understand what's going on to properly explain to the surgeon who may fight with you and not understand what you're trying to do or what you want to do and what the patient's needs are. Mm -hmm. So um, this is the case of Harlequin, Harlequin syndrome in, in a VA ECMO patient. So uh, the case study, uh, it was a 26-year-old male, 74 kilos, 67 inches, so fairly uh, good size, uh, normal size, young, young, young guy. Presents in ICU with a PE, unstable on multiple presses, max with uh, max for hemodynamic support. Bedside 2D echo showed RV dysfunction with low cardiac output, um, also being vented uh, on a ventilator with maximum vent settings for oxygen support. So the patient was then put on VA ECMO uh, for cardiogenic shock with acute respiratory failure. After five days of VA ECMO support, the patient started to show improved signs of cardiac function. And it, was, and it was able to be weaned off of all presses despite improvements on, in cardiac function. The patient started to present with onset ARDS worsening with increased hemodynamics. Um, the patient began to show signs of progressive hypoxia that seemed to be more significant in the upper extremities. The VA ECMO flow was, uh, was at 4.8 liters per minute. Um, FIO2 was at 100% max. Um, vent settings were also maxed out at 100% with the PEEPA 14. Um, so at this point, we had everything on board that we needed to properly oxygenate the support. But with findings of increased hemodynamics, we started to see the worsening of the patient's hypoxia. Pulse oximetries showing 84% as low as 80%. Um, and these are all peripheral at the, on the fingertips at the ear. When we would put a pulse ox on the feet, then they would read 100%, 98 to 100%. Um, so as I was saying, uh, the pulse ox on the feet showed 98 to 100%. These findings showed low saturation, uh, matching the ABG, which was a cause of poor oxygenation. Um, so the question was, were we, uh, was our ECMO efficient, running efficient, and was it competent enough to properly oxygenate the patient? Uh, we did circuit gases. Circuit gases were, were great. PO2s greater than 300. Um, so obviously... Um, this was um, an event of differential hypoxia that we were dealing with, also known as Harlequin syndrome, or North and South syndrome. Mm -hmm. um, in addition, we also added an esmolar drip um, before you know, trying to do any other in interventions. Um, possibly if we slow down the heart rate, that could allow more adequate uh, filling time um, doing diastole, and um, you know, obviously uh, get, letting more of the oxygenated blood get to the heart. Um, but with that, we still uh, didn't see any improvements with oxygenation, so we had to figure out uh, a better, further intervention to help this problem. So uh, I'm going to go a little bit about Harlequin syndrome. So Harlequin syndrome, typically blood uh, leaving the ECMO circuit is normally fully saturated with oxygen, but it only reaches the body region supplied by the descending aorta, distal arch, during peripheral VA cannulation, right? So in the event of Harlequin syndrome, there's an area of known as watershed, which is the region where the blood mixes, um, and it can lie anywhere between the, the aortic root or the diaphragm, depending on the output of the LV, which is relative to ECMO retrograde flow. So you're basically uh, competing with the patient's native heart rate contractility and the ECMO flow. So just to be clear, so it would be, it would, it would be uh, that mixing cloud or watershed area watershed that you referred area. to would be affected by the LV function, but Correct. also by the amount of 
flow coming up from the femoral. Absolutely. So, so if you if you had weak LV but turned your flow down, that flow that mixing cloud would move further south. Would I move further, it would be. So if you if if you had issues with flowing and you weren't flowing adequately with VA ECMO, then obviously absolutely it would move further south. Mm -hmm. Okay. So. Um, So um, in this region of watershed or the mixing cloud, which we were talking about during the Holocaust syndrome event, the two bloodstreams meet when the LV output becomes higher relative to the retrograde ECMO flow. So this area of watershed lies more distal, thus creating insufficient oxygenation support, uh, to support the upper body and brain relative to the lower body flow of the ECMO. So the, ECMO, the, the rich oxygenated ECMO blood is not able to get all the way into the heart. More, and so it stays distal relative to the aorta. Due Which is going to affect the brain. Absolutely, right. absolutely. And that's when we see, start to see the, the upper body hypoxia. Mm -hmm. Due to the patient's on-cued on onset of ARS, despite maximum vent support with alveolar gas exchange is impaired, the need to introduce an additional cannula for optimal pulmonary oxygenation and support needed to be in place. So a solution and approach. So to address this problem, we decided after talking to the surgeon and um, trying to help him understand what we needed. And um, in addition to him still needing the VA ECMO support, um, we, did, we didn't want to take him off VA ECMO, put him on VV, and then his heart fails, and then we, we'd be back in the same boat going in circles. So we decided to leave the VA ECMO in, but in this case we used an um, aortic return cannula, which is a 22 French E-open. We wired it into the VA ECMO, um, with the Y connector, so that allowed us to, to go VAVV ECMO into the internal jugular vein, um, where uh, we're able to deliver oxygen into the venous system, pulmonary circulation, increasing the oxygen content um, delivered by the LV output. And so this is just a diagram showing where uh, you would see uh, cyanosis in the upper body. Uh, during insufficient oxygenation from the VA ECMO, and the, where the lower body is more pink, um, and that's showing uh, adequate oxygenation because uh, we're able to support the lower body, but not the upper body. And then this here is the deoxygenated blood coming from the LV um, because the patient's in ARDS, um, so it's pumping out poor oxygenated blood from the pulmonary circulation. Um, this is the VA ECMO, and then this is the mixing area uh, distal to the arch. And here's a little video, which I think you guys will uh, definitely appreciate uh, with the little talk. Should be audio too, right? Yeah, there's audio. Okay. VA ECMO is often performed using peripherally placed cannulas, typically placed in the femoral vessels. This animation shows arterial ECMO access in the femoral artery. With extreme cardiac dysfunction on ECMO support, if the heart is not beating and the aortic valve is not opening, the blood being pumped through this cannula provides 100% of the patient's blood flow. In this scenario, there's no mixing of the two circulations since no circulatory support is being provided by the native heart. Upon return of cardiac function, when the heart starts to beat and the aortic valve begins to open, the situation becomes quite unique. Because the peripherally placed ECMO cannula is pumping blood in a direction that is retrograde to the native blood flow, the two circulations merge or mix together in a location somewhere between the aortic valve and the arterial cannula. As left ventricular function is restored and contractility increases, the mixing cloud may shift distally in the aorta towards the arterial cannula. The same shift can occur if the ECMO blood flow is decreased. Conversely, as ECMO blood flow is increased, or as left ventricular function decreases, the mixing cloud may shift more proximally in the aorta. Let's take a closer look at this phenomenon. Once again, with severe cardiac dysfunction, if the aortic valve is not opening, blood mixing does not occur in the aorta. However, as the heart begins to eject, blood traversing the aortic valve begins to mix with blood traveling retrograde from the arterial cannula. In the scenario shown in this animation, 
blood sampled at various sites throughout the body would have a similar composition. The exception may be the coronary arteries due to their proximal takeoff from the ascending aorta. As the heart contracts more and more forcefully, or as ECMO flows decrease, the location of the mixing cloud can migrate more distally in the aorta. In the scenario illustrated here, consider the impact of the circulatory pattern on cerebral perfusion. The brachiocephalic artery is perfused by blood from the left ventricle, which may be poorly oxygenated. However, the distal arch vessels are perfused by a mixture of blood being pumped from the left ventricle and blood pumped from the ECMO circuit. Blood sampled from the right radial artery, for example, may have a composition that is markedly different from blood sampled at the ECMO arterial line. As the heart continues to recover and contractility increases, or as ECMO flows decrease further, the mixing cloud can continue to shift distally. Again, consider the impact of these scenarios on regional perfusion and on differences in blood sampled from various sites in the body versus blood sampled from the ECMO arterial line. In addition to understanding where this mixing occurs, the ECMO specialist should understand the significance of mechanical ventilation in these scenarios. Blood being ejected from the left ventricle generally perfuses the coronary arteries and may provide cerebral perfusion. So care should be taken to adequately oxygenate blood traversing the aortic valve if the lungs are capable. So also additional findings in helping us diagnose um, the need for VAV ECMO and if the patient is presenting with severe Harlequin syndrome. Um, we can also assess the pulse pressure at the radial artery um, and, uh, to help locate the watershed region. Um, and then I, I never really noticed this before, but it'll be something to look for in the future if we ever see this again. Um, so you know, the ECMO flow, usually you get non-pulsatile flow, uh, but it also narrows the pulse pressure. So at the radial artery, uh, at the radial artery will indicate what, what, where the watershed of the aortic root is. So the wider the pulse pressure at the radial artery, that suggests the watershed uh, region distal to the to the anonymous artery. So the wider the pulse pressure, uh, then that will tell us if it's more distal. If it's more narrow, then it's more proximal. Mm -hmm. So you're okay. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd I think about it. that for I get a second. It. Yes. But yeah. And then thinking back too. Um, I remember during that case, we actually, uh, in addition to comparing uh, pulse oximetry on the right and left, uh, we also did ABGs samples from the right and left, where uh, the right, the left side did show a better blood gas sample from the, the right side. The left side showed better than the right. Yeah, the left side, I'm sorry. The left mm -hmm. side showed better than the right, right, mm -hmm. from what we, would, we just well, saw and, too. And how many times have you been in a, a situation like this and... Uh, because it's our role to understand that the right radial is where we're going to see the problem first. For sure. And, but they're taking samples because they only have access on the left, right? Yeah, the left versus the right. Right. Mm -hmm. and, yes. they're, and so it's really our role to make sure where is that blood gas coming from? Because yeah, I've been sure. in that situation mm -hmm. where the blood gas is great. You know, why, is, you know, wh why are we having a problem? <laughs> where's, the, where's the sample coming so from? Let me, yes, absolutely. So... Can I, do you mind if I fill Absolutely, in a few yes, gaps yes, with yes. this? Because I think you, you, you just did an excellent um, review of Harlequin syndrome and brought this case up. So if we can discuss this. Mm -hmm. First of all, I seriously question, you know, and I've been in this situation before. They put the patient on VA ECMO because there was depressed vent, uh, cardiac function. Mm -hmm. But you have, a, you have a hypodynamic heart. But why? Okay, the question is why? And he had ARDS. He had some level of pulmonary failure, which ended up complete pulmonary failure. Mm -hmm. But the algorithm, I don't have it up or I would show it, but it's something we're going to add to the app as a, as a, as when we do our, our updates on our app, um, is the algorithm is if you... Have, if you have cardiac depression, mm -hmm. which is secondary to or primarily caused from hypoxemia, VA ECMO 
is not the appropriate therapy. The the ECMO is the appropriate therapeutic modality. Because if you fix the hypoxemia, you fix the cardiac function. And so VA ECMO in the face of only pulmonary failure, because once you put them on VA ECMO, their heart function improved dramatically, but their lung function did not. Mm -hmm. So now you have a more hyperdynamic heart Mm-hmm. which is pumping deoxygenated blood, fighting against our ECMO flow. So mm-hmm. if you wanted to do VAV to start with, V-AV, yeah. that's like fine. Yeah. But VV ECMO would have been, I think, the, the, the right choice on this patient right. first. Mm-hmm. Secondly... But, you know, you have people who don't really understand this sometimes, intensivists maybe or whomever. Mm-hmm. That's why the data is published. Right, but that's, it's our job to really point that out, yes. that just because you're on you know, two pressors doesn't automatically mean you need VA ECMO. Yes, and of course it really Because I actually had that quoted to me. It actually helps. We're on two pressors now. Maybe we need to convert to VA. Right. But why, you know, why, why is that? That's, not, that's, a, that's something to make you look at what's going mm-hmm. on, not necessarily... That's a flow chart. You have this, so you go to this, right? right? If you don't have ECMO, yes. Mm-hmm. When you're dealing with normal physiology of the patient and their own, their own uh, organ function, right. then yes, that's appropriate. But you can't, compa- you can't correlate that to, I'm now on mechanical circulatory support. It changes everything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And how you approach all of these problems gets changed as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember this case very well, and it really what really is the biggest problem is the cannulas were in the patient before a perfusion has ever got in the hospital. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's the first thing that happened. The second thing that happened mm-hmm. was this: they were drawing blood gases originally from left side. No, from the femoral artery. Mm-hmm. Oh, the contralateral that's... femoral artery and arguing with us that the PO2 is over 300. What's your, what, is, what, what is your problem? Mm-hmm. Well, they didn't understand north-south at all. Right. Well, the, the, the cannula was in the, uh, in the contralateral femoral artery. We were basically doing circuit gases. Right. 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 And <laughs> so if you have VA ECMO, when you are doing VA ECMO, mm-hmm. Your ventilator and your lungs have to keep working, mm-hmm. number one, yeah. if the heart's working. Well, and if you're going to draw a gas, it needs to be from an area that is past the circuit for circulation. The only, yes, and in, in my opinion, the only safe place to do that is the right radial. You can't check the aortic root for obvious reasons, where the coronaries are, mm-hmm. and you could certainly have some mixing there, but your first branch off your aorta is the anominate. That's going to your subcla- right subclavian, to your right radial. That is going to be the best reflection of what the patient's brain, brain is, is seeing. Mm-hmm. Right is right. Didn't right. you learn that? Right is right. right no, is right. I had to heard that before. <laughs> right is right. Right is right. I like that. Right yeah, right. Uh-huh. I like that. That's a good one. So, how did this all turn out, man? Um, so. Um, you know, after, um, you know, obviously after we, we went on v, VAV ECMO and we put, put the patient on ECMO, um, he responded very well. Um, you know, we, we were able to flow of a common, of, of combined about seven liters of flow, three, probably three and a half to the IJ, three mm-hmm. and a half to the groin, but um, adequate enough to oxygenate and overcome his, his deoxygenation issue from the, in the pulmonary articulation mm-hmm. with what we saw with the, low, uh, with the increased cardiac output. Now, with that said, we had to modulate that flow because one's going to have higher resistance than we the did. other, and we had to move the flow probe back and forth, and we had to use clamps to partially occlude mm-hmm. the lower resistance line to make sure we had enough flow. The flow settings the way we wanted right. them to be to get us the result. Because we at this point, right. we probably needed to maximize our uh, VV flow versus our VA. Yeah, you needed because. to maximize the flow into the IJ. Yeah. So we need to inhibit the flow into the femoral artery. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Although the flow through the IJ, because it was lower resistance, 
was higher naturally anyway. Mm -hmm. So we just had to move the flow probe back and forth to get the flow we wanted. And then, you know, you had to check it every once in a while because as the resistance changed in the patient, it made a difference as to what those flows were. Mm -hmm. So you could have one staying the same and the other one going up or down and not really be able to see that. And for anyone who's never done this, you know, you're, it's so easy to do. You're just taking your flow probe, which, of course, is very easy to move at any time. Electromagnetic. Yeah. It's, and you're just moving it uh, past your Y on your return. And then you are writing down that number or remembering that number. And then you are going to your other inflow, which happens to be the femoral artery. You're writing down that flow, and then that together should give you co your combined flow that you're seeing on your, you know, control panel. Yes. And just working from there. And you're right, the smallest uh, changes could really impact flow. So you might do the smallest little change and have a great difference uh, in your flow. Into or the patient's SVR yeah, that can too. change enough. Mm -hmm. Patient's volume status can change mm -hmm. enough. There's a lot of things that can alter and affect where the cannula is positioned, how they turn the head. Mm -hmm. So many things will affect that. It's challenging to do mm -hmm. BAB with only one flow probe. You really need more than one, I mm -hmm. think. When you're doing these exotic cannulation techniques, I think it helps to have multiple flow probes, multiple abilities. But mm -hmm. most places, most community hospitals aren't going to plan to do these ty types of things. So you need right. to be able to adapt with whatever equipment you have. Mm -hmm. You know, for community hospital, and I'll talk about this more coming up, uh, I believe, on Saturday. For community hospital um, system, you know, now we're in multiple hospitals, but we have done since March of, uh, of uh, 2020, we have done over 50 ECMOs. 47 I've, I've, I've gotten data from, but we've done over 50 ECMOs. Yeah. And that's, that's so, you know, I think that, the ELSA meter, even though, you know, I'm not trying to plug them, but, you know, that has two channel flow probes. So in, a v, in an exotic cannulation strategy, having that available, very helpful because you can put your flow probe from the ECMO pump on your outflow of the oxygenator and then one of those on each of the arms and be able to have three flows that you're actually watching total, this arm, that arm. Yeah. Mm-hmm which is kind of neat. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's very neat. Mm -hmm. But I think having the ability to have more flows is uh, beneficial in those cases. Mm -hmm. Now, we don't do a lot of exotic cannulations. Most of ours for ARDS are going to be, or COVID-related lung injury, right. lung, lung failure, are going to be just straight BB. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But we have done it before. Right. I've done it. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. But, yeah, you know, this, you know, cases like these you don't really see often. I mean, I, I mean in my career... I mean, I think I've, I've gotten quite a bit of experience with, with ECMO, VA, and VB, mm -hmm. but this is probably only the second case of VAV ECMO that I've ever... VAV. Yeah, that mm -hmm. I've ever had to do. And um, you do a lot of ECMO. Mm -hmm, we do. So we, it is unusual. It is, mm -hmm. it is. In bigger places, you know, like John, yeah. our good friend John Ingram, he sees this all the time. Two circuits on one person, VV-AV. VV dash VV. Well, and in those situations, I mean, those institutions, this is something almost commonplace to think about. Um, and so this talk probably isn't even that helpful to them. This is really targeting the people that are doing ECMO, mm -hmm. but not at these huge ECMO centers, because mm -hmm. you have to be able to figure this out, because it was the perfusionist, if I'm not mistaken, right. that figured this out. You know, mm -hmm. it was you mm -hmm. or you, because I know y'all were both involved. It was us. In, yeah, mm -hmm. involved in this, uh, and nobody else had even seen it yet. Mm -hmm. You know, so mm -hmm. it it this is uh, useful information for us because sometimes we are going to be the first person to figure out a very serious problem. Right. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah. absolutely. And especially if you're you're at a center where like you're you're just starting a new ECMO program, and you you know a patient comes in presents like this and you have to put on an ECMO and then you have to do a conversion to, to help support the patient further, like you, you, know, you have to be able to uh, look for the different findings on what to do and what to you know, seek out to, you know, what changes you need to do to, to make it. But I think this transcends this yeah. case. Mm -hmm. I think at the end of the day, this is really about um, understanding our circuit. Right, this is really about flow dynamics. Anatomy, anatomy. and understanding mm -hmm. the, the, the normal cardiac, 
cardiovascular system in a very deep way to really be able to understand what I'm doing with this pump and how that's because you can't see through the patient. You can't. You know, it's so it's for us it's a little easier. You know, you can hold the tubing and feel if it's soft or it's hard mm -hmm. and pressure's high, pressure's not high, whatever it might be. There's a lot of things we can gain and, and infer from just visualization and also tactile um, uh, palpations and things like that. But very difficult to do when you're trying to understand what's happening anatomically inside someone that you can't see. You really got to really understand the anatomy very well yeah. to do our job effectively, I believe. Mm -hmm. I agree. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um, what was I going to add? And, you know, you made a good point earlier on, you know, how, you know, determining, you know, if the patient actually, did they need VV or did they need VA, you know? I, I mean, think that patient needed VV. VV. But, you know, when, when someone presents with PE, automatically you think PE, PE, you're probably going to put them on VA at more, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, if it's a PE, if it's a saddle block embolism, so yeah. you have, you know, your right heart has just exploded. But I don't think that was this kid's problem. No. Nope. He did have PEs. I agree with that. But his problem, he had ARDS. ARDS. It wasn't it just is. these PEs. Right. And I think the PEs were suspect. 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 He had something else going on. He had ARDS. He had pulmonary failure. Okay. He was hypoxic. Hypoxic. He developed... Uh, cardiac dysfunction or depression secondary to hypoxemia mm -hmm. and we saw that at another hospital with a totally different surgeon if you remember yes and you know there was a lot of like are you sure we don't need VA ECMO no we need VV ECMO mm -hmm. and as soon as that patient became oxygenated that heart came right came back. back and that patient actually went on to do fine yeah and, and you know and that um, was the problem yeah and you know sometimes um, it'll be interesting to look at too because you know from when I remember even learning when I was in school um, as a, as a as a respiratory therapist too, um, when a patient's on a ventilator, the higher your peak, that'll actually increase transpulmonary pressure, and mm -hmm. it would actually lower your blood pressure. Yes, so, of course. So then you know the nurses actively treat it with you know hemodynamic pressures to increase you know the contractility, you know increase the blood pressure, when you know they're also trying to increase uh, oxygen you know oxygenation by you know IFO2 and PEEP high PEEP, but you know, uh, I'm, I'm not really sure. I'd have to go look at some data to see actually how much peak is significant that actually causes that, that change. Physiological. Physiological change, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. But it does cause some, some moderate, you know, hypertension. Yeah, and if you have peak of 18, it's really going to cause Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, you're going to have some real problems mm -hmm. there mm -hmm. because that's a big-time intravascular. Then you're going to have a big-time essentially intrathoracic pressure. pressure. It's going to be very hard for mm -hmm. the... RV to pump through mm -hmm. that system. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of pressure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a lot of pressure. That's not intended to be there. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, good. Very good. Excellent. Excellent um, presentation. And I just, I just had one more. Yeah. Um, this is the last diagram. It's just showing about the, uh, the watershed uh, area with um, the deoxygenated blood right here. Mm -hmm. um, and then the ECMO flow. Oh, what did I do? You went to it. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Yeah, put your finger on it and yeah. hold it. We, that's where the pump blood goes in and then the, the mixing of the blood. And in that one, it would be real, like in this particular scenario, mm -hmm. your, no matter where you drew your blood from, either right or left, mm -hmm. it wouldn't be a good Right, blood but you gas. can get really tricked because if you, your left radial, if that mixing cloud, can you mm -hmm. use your laser pointer and just go up to the left subclavian? Left subclavian, uh huh? Yeah, you can see. Yeah, yeah, further to the, no, that's the right subclavian, the left oh, subclavian. Yeah, yeah, you, there can, you, go. Yeah. you yeah. can see right there. You're, <laughs> you know, you you're gonna get tricked if you think that that is ends up, you know, with a reasonably decent PO2. Two, two. The 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 left carotid and the and the uh, right carotid right, may be right. very low. Right. I mean, and there should be physical indications as well. You know, what does their color look like in their fingers and all of those sorts mm -hmm. of things? What does it look like in their ears? You it, know? In this patient, it looked really bad. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. And it was, yeah, and I think you're being generous with the 80. Yeah. yeah it was a lot lower than that. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Saturations mm -hmm. were very low. It, yeah. was, it was clearly obvious that we had a big problem. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But again, they were still arguing with me because they were drawing femoral arterial femoral blood gas. Right. Mm. Which, is the, which is the second gas. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. Post-oxygenated blood. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. Okay, good job. All so right. if you would just disconnect it from okay. the uh, power cord. Uh, here. Yeah, wherever yeah. the power cord is, and just okay. hand it to me. Okay. I'll go ahead and do mine. Okay. okay. We'll just keep on going. Okay.
Okay. Now, I wish Mike was here because Mike had to go do a case. And so, um, unfortunately, he knows about this case. And uh, this is my unusual case. It was very, um, it was very traumatic for me. <coughs> to be honest with you. Hmm. But uh, but anyway, so let me let me get started right away. So the patient was a 57-year-old <coughs> male. Was in for an isolated. Uh, mitral valve replacement, MVR, uh, had isolated mitral regurgitation, uh, congestive heart failure, they were 178 centimeters, 87 kilograms, and basically just normal labs. So great, it was really a pretty decent case. I was going to have plenty of volume, all that kind of stuff, you know, because we always worry about that, but when they have, you know, long-standing MR, they're always hypervolemic, the hearts are big, and visualization is good. It's always easier for the surgeon that way, you know, yada, yada, yada. So the plan was to do a minimally invasive MVR with a right anterior approach. Mm -hmm. We used a 24 French VFEM by Edwards and a 20 French Edwards Opti for the femoral arterial return. Um, systemic hyperkalemia technique was going to be used. And if you don't know about systemic hyperkalemia technique, it is a technique where we add, let me go to this slide. There's a paper that I wrote. It's a little out of order. Um, and uh, this is the first time that I did it was back in 2006. In fact, that we were supposed to be doing one of these cases today, yeah. Tammy, but it got delayed until next week. Min, you've done these cases with me. They become somewhat popular. Yeah. And basically, you put the patient on FemFem bypass. It's a right anterior thoracotomy approach. Uh, much in the same way they do it at Vanderbilt. They did it at Vanderbilt. Dr. Tracek popularized this. Now, he was a pretty small incision. Our guys aren't quite as small as an incision, but Dr. Tracek used fibrillatory arrest. Mm -hmm. um, and at the time, we had this patient, uh, original patient that I did, um, was, uh, she was a little lady. She was in, believe it or not, renal failure on dialysis. She had had previous coronary bypass grafts. And uh, we did not want to do a sternotomy. And uh, so I thought to myself, okay, this lady's pretty fragile. If we fibrillate her for however long it's going to take to do this, this way, um, is that heart really going to come back? And there were some issues with the ones that were done by Dr. Petrasic. They had some complications, which I thought could be avoided if we could actually arrest the heart. So we gave the, I came up with this idea to go on bypass, cool the patient, um, not profound, but cool them, um, you know, moderate, 28, 30, somewhere around there. Give the patient a big dose of potassium, arrest the heart. Now, this only works if you have m less than moderate AI, because you, otherwise you get a lot of suction. It's hard to keep up with. But, you know, one to <laughs> two light plus AI and you can manage it with a drop sucker or whatever, uh, just you know, right there in the ventricle, um, and they could go ahead and do the uh, the, the valve. But um, you give the patient a high dose of potassium, get the potassium up to about 13. On this lady, I got it up to 18. I gave a little more than I really needed to. Later on, we learned to add esmolol and some other things. But the heart stops, but it's continuously perfused. So wait, you're talking about. So just to clarify for no one, for people who haven't ever heard of this, how are you getting that potassium into the patient? We we, we draw it up and give it to them through the pump. Through the pump, right? Through the pump, yes. Yeah, I'm just trying to make yes. that clear. Yes. So you know everybody here is a perfusionist. You have to infuse the potassium. I gave I think that patient about 380 milli equivalents of potassium and you drive the potassium level way up, and you arrest the heart. And you give it through and the pump. You give it through the Three, pump, 380 yes. for the whole case, not initial case, right? No, it was mostly, it was mostly initial, because I really didn't know how to do it. Because this was your, your first time. It was the very first time I'd done it. Um, you have to be very careful. I did learn you can give potassium a little too fast, even into the pump. Um, and you do have to be concerned, because if you give potassium into a peripheral vein, that you can burn the, the, the intima of the vessels. So you give it a little slower in the pump, but even at that, you have to be very careful how fast you give it because you'll get some pretty serious hypertension. hypertension. 
Um, so I learned that early on as well. But nevertheless, the potassium was 18. Um, obviously, the heart didn't move. They did the procedure, and I used continuous veno-veno hemofiltration with a replacement fluid that was bicarb-based to remove the potassium. I think I did like 25 to 30 liters of replacement on this lady. Did a little bit of insulin and stuff. Her sugar had gone up. You got to be careful not to use, not to treat the sugar when you have the potassium right. high. But nevertheless, we got the potassium back to normal. The heart came back to a normal rhythm. We were able to wean the patient from bypass, never touched their aorta, didn't have to dissect out all of that stuff. Uh, patient went on to have a very normal course, did very well, and left the hospital. And after that, it became our preferred method for doing mitral valve replacements, first on patients with previous cabbage surgery, but then later it became how we did all mitral valves mm -hmm. because we didn't like the idea of fibrillatory arrest. Even cold and empty, fibrillation uses a tremendous amount of energy. Mm -hmm. So you're chewing up all of your ATP stores and you're, you know, I, I feel like the hearts do really, really, really well this technique versus that technique. Mm -hmm. And so it's become very popular. I've done uh, probably 40 or 50 cases like that now um, here in Houston. I think we've probably done it at least that many times. I've taught several people how to do it. And it is, I think, gaining popularity on more of a national and international scale. So uh, it's been reported by other people now as well, but I do have the first publication, so I get to take credit for that. Okay, Good job. so that's on that. So. Now, here are the complications of this case. What made it so unusual? Well, first time the surgeon was using the technique and he didn't want to use another surgeon to, who had previously done it to work with him. He's gonna do this on his own. First time for the, I was there, but it was another perfusionist who was gonna do the case. I was gonna teach that person how to do it. Ultimately, another perfusionist came to uh, be a part of it and to help. And so you now have three perfusionists doing one case. That's a traditional recipe for disaster all on its own. And then there was anesthesia, since it was the first time the surgeon had done this case. It was also the first time in this hospital it had been done. And anesthesia was arguing about everything, including esmolol, because we had learned by then that esmolol really helps and you don't have to use nearly as much Potassium. So, um, and I have my own way of doing it, but nevertheless, and on top of all of that, there was a guy that was looking to move here who was interviewing to be a surgeon with this other surgeon. He was looking to hire him. So he is observing the case. So just to add a little icing onto this cupcake yeah, that I've got with me now. here. Yeah, now we've got that going on too. Room seems crowded. Room was crowded. So, so what happened? I'll tell you the story. So as you can see here, we were, this was FAM access, FAM return cannulation. We had uh, your standard uh, bypass circuit, uh, centrifugal pump going through the oxygenator, coming out of the oxygenator, going to our air bubble detector and flow probe somewhere in there as well, <laughs> coming up and going back into the femoral artery. We had this, this recirculation line that goes from the out, our arterial line that's distal to the oxygenator, so the line that goes to the patient, oops, sorry, and it was going right up here like that. Well, during the, the, uh, the uh, potassium removal process, I only had one of these, and so I decided it was not enough, and we were trying to passively run through the, ultra, the hemoconcentrator. We were not running through the hemoconcentrator with a roller pump. I've since learned that that's a much better technique. So I added this second one. So this one was here originally, then this one. And again, I was using the pressure in this line, and only a perfusionist is going to understand this, right? I'm using the pressure in my arterial line to drive through the two hemoconcentrators back to the venous reservoir and then using taking the ultrafiltrate out from this Neptune here. Mm -hmm. So we're going along. Which is the normal process for using a um, 
Ultrafiltrator. Yes, but not when you do this procedure. Nope. Not when you do this procedure. Yeah. Well, as soon as I added this second line, which actually I guess I could just draw if I can, because technically the blood's coming up this way, and then it's going back to the reservoir. So you have this shunt. Yeah. Okay? So it's doing that. So, of course, you have your flow probe is here. Flow probe. All right? So when I open this one up here, after about 30 seconds or so, or maybe even not even 30 seconds, this is, I'll say it's about 30 seconds, there was a big alarm, air bubble detector. And I looked at the pump. And this was full of blood, this was full of blood, this was full of blood, this line was full of blood, but this line from here all the way to here was air. Wow. That whole line was full of air, so nothing like but air. Half your arterial line was full of air. Full of air. Distal to the, uh, distal to the uh, oxygenator. Distal to the oxygenator, and but up only up to the flow probe. Everything proximal, the I mean the air bubble detector. Everything proximal to the air bubble detector was still fully primed. There was no air anywhere back here. What was your flow doing? Well, it was it had gone to heck in a handbasket. But I didn't realize that at the time because again, one perfusionist is doing that. I'm over here adding another hemoconcentrator. And so, and there's a third perfusionist who's jibber jabbering, <laughs> giving direction for this and that for no good reason, and an observer wanting to know what we're doing. So there's all so this distraction. How do you do this? And why are you doing? Yeah. yeah. Hmm. So obviously, we clamp everything. We told the surgeon we have a big problem. You got to disconnect that. I mean, this wasn't even. It wasn't even like. I mean, I was like, I need you to put a clamp right there and open, disconnect that line. And I mean, I literally, that's how it went. It was not, we have an air in the line. It was just direction on what to do. Yeah. We filled the line. How? From the pump. From the open pump. It up, yeah. No, the I'm just now, obviously, along. I clamped these things out. I right. clamped these, both that, of that them. That was yeah. a problem. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that was a problem. So we filled the line. Okay. Now. This is where it gets really scary, because after filling the line and clamping it, he opened up the femoral arterial line, but there's nothing coming out. Uh, nothing you, coming out. Break it back. Yeah. There's nothing coming wow. out. Pushing on it, nothing coming out. There's air in the patient. So I'm just re reconnected. Just reconnected. Uh. Reconnected it. Went back on bypass. I asked for the patient to be in Trendelenburg, which they obliged. Yeah. Went on bypass very slowly and built back up again to full flow. Now, I still have a potassium of 11 or 12. So I still have to deal with that. Clearly, I'm very stressed. Have no idea what's going to happen. We finish the procedure. We get all the potassium out. The guy that was interviewing who was asking all the questions. He probably he left. Laughs. He did. He just he left. left. This is not the place for he me. Le he left. We did the procedure. We finished the procedure. The patient came off pump, and we took the patient to the ICU. Patient was extubated in two hours. Unbelievable. Wow. The patient was discharged to home five days later. Great. So what the hell happened? Did you know what happened? I so. But I put that up there, there, but for the grace of God, go I. Okay, I, I mean, this was probably one of those cases, like Mike had said earlier, that will stick with me forever. Oh, yeah. I still can feel, you Anxiety, know, right? I, well, let's talk about what happened first, but, uh -huh. but, but, but let me, no, let me say this first. I sat in the ICU until that patient woke up. I didn't leave that patient's bedside. Everybody wanted to know what happened. I'm saying nothing because I don't need to precondition people's minds, right? We're, we're going to wake this patient up. I mean, there, no, the surgeon already decided 
we're not saying just let's see what happens before we go yeah. saying anything at this point because they weren't going to do hypothermia protocol. He didn't want to do any of that. He wanted to wake the patient up. So that was going to be the decision. Now, that may have been the better thing to do. I don't really know. Clearly, it ended up good. But they, I stayed there. Patient woke up, did fine on the vent, got extubated. The nurse is like, what? You never do this. Squeeze my hand. Go to this. Squeeze this hand. Wiggle your toes. What's your name? What's, who's your, what's your wife's name? You name it. This guy was completely, just did fine. Wow. He did fine. He That's left great. the hospital. It's like nothing ever happened to him. Okay. So what happened, man? I'm going to delete all this stuff. What happened? Um, so basically, as soon as you, you, you already have a big shunt, and you're going. Mm-hmm. And let me the, put these lines back. And you're going from the Neptune, and um, basically, um, as soon as you opened up the other ultrafiltration system, that just increased more negative pressure. Um, Exanguinating the heart. Yes, so the, the heart, heart was open. Into, the heart was open. Because the right anterior approach, they have the left atrium right. open. Yep. And so what it did was it sucked air, it it sucked air drained from, the... from that hole back this way to get to here and to this Y to go this way, I guess this way and this way. So that's what happened. We didn't have enough forward flow, enough oomph in this line to overcome the suck from the Neptune. Yeah, because the Neptune's sucking away the waste. Yes. And the Venus was under vacuum assist venous drainage. So I had a lot lot of of vacuum on board. A lot of negative Negative pressure pressure. pulling this way and not enough flow going that way. Curiosity, do you know what your Neptune pressure suction was set? Max. I always put it on the maximum, 380. Mm -hmm. But I learned. Don't let it passively run. Put it in a roller pump. Roller pump. You can control it with occlusion. Yes. Okay. You keep that from happening. But let's say we didn't want to do a roller pump. If the, do you think you would have had the similar problem if we had just had a small amount of suction on the Neptune for waste removal? You know, I don't know. I think it depends on this, uh, how much shunt flow there was and where the flow was. In where other your words, pump flow is. Right. So, you know, there's a lot of things here that could have happened. And I'm not, you know, pointing fingers at anybody no, other I'm than just, myself. I'm just thinking. Because I will tell you, I thought, as I said earlier, I meant to say this, I thought it was my last case. We're always... I, I thought that was, I, I thought to myself, this is the last case I'm ever going to do. This is the end of my career. I did not think it was, you know, it turned out great. But I, uh, I, mean, I really thought that, you know, for the duration of the case, up until the time that patient was extubated and I could see that they were going to be fine, sure. up to that point in time, I really thought that was the end of my career. I said, it's time going out. And just for clarification, you had done, you talked about your first case. Mm-hmm. This was far from your first case. Correct. You had done this many, many yes. times over several years. Yes. Different surgeons, different institutions. Two and... years. Yeah. Okay. At that point, I think about three years of experience with it. And, and you, you never had a problem like this before. No. Have you and always I... used two, two ultrafiltration yes. suctions going yes. off of Neptune? So did the flow get turned down? Because I'm over there monkeying with it. Did the flow get turned down? That, re- that started this cascade, yeah. or was it, I mean, because it's hard for me to believe if you're flowing four and a half liters that way, that two hemoconcentrators that would happen to. So, again, likely scenario is somebody turned the flow down, but like I said from the very beginning of this conversation, three perfusionists doing one case with a surgeon who'd never done it before, anesthesia who's arguing about everything, and a visiting surgeon observing. It's a lot of distractions. It's a lot. It's a recipe for disaster. So, yeah, there's my unusual case. What was your patient's um, pressure, right? If the patient was hypertensive, right, the the afterload could affect your your flow and drop your flows too, right? I don't think that was it. Not enough, though. Not enough. That wasn't the problem. Yeah, uh, hypertension from the potassium. Yes, but that wasn't it because we were removing the potassium at that point. Mm. We were far enough along that we had started removing the potassium. And at what step 
you know, I haven't done one of these all the way through, do you mm -hmm. actively start trying to remove your potassium? Very good question. And it really depends on a lot of factors, uh, predominantly the speed of the surgeon. Mm -hmm. So if they're using core knot, yeah. that's going to speed it up. I'll sure. Usually if they put in, let's say they put eight stitches mm -hmm. in the annulus, um, then I'm probably going to start when they finish tying the second one. Uh, and it depends on how high potassium is, how much potassium did you have to give, how big is the patient. And you're all measuring of those the potassium by sending it to the lab. Yes, predominantly. Well, I like to use, you know, it's another issue, but I like to use the Siemens um, Rapid Point. It's the one I like the most as far as a point of care yeah. uh, blood gas analyzer because it measures potassium up to 18. Well, and we know one that. One of the only ones that yeah, do that. Yeah, the iStat certainly does not. I don't no, know about the EPOC. Nine. nine. Mm. And, if you, and if you can concentrate your, your volume down to not minimum, but uh, not overloading your volume, when you start to dialysate and pull off, you can increase your time, right, with less volume. Yes, clearly, yes. Mm. The lower your volume yeah. in your reservoir. But I've learned various different techniques. I'll have to give a talk on, we've done one. And in fact, they can, read, they, can, they can look it up on our YouTube channel. Mm -hmm. uh, it was Matoyer that did the case. He, we narrate it. It actually explains it really yeah, well. Yeah, I've seen that one. And I like to use a roller pump for both the hemoconcentrator flow and the return volume mm -hmm. flow because you can get your, your reservoir volume down lower and then I just increase and decrease my replacement volume to keep my level where I want it so that I can really ultrafiltrate a tremendous amount. So you're using positive pressure flow for your flow into your hemoconcentrator mm -hmm. by running uh, something off the research line. Off, or the, car off the cardioplegia line, because oh. I don't use cardioplegia. Oh, yeah. okay. So you have your cardioplegia port off your oxygenator, mm -hmm. and you're running that through a roller head. Yes. And then it's running into your hemoconcentrator, yes. and then it's uh, then uh, uh, draining back into the top of your reservoir. Yes. But if you have two hemoconcentrators, are you using two roller head pumps? No. No. I use a traditional hemoconcentrator with our normal shunt. It's just I use one up top. That's my primary one. This one I use for volume removal. In other words, taking. So it off doesn't from have the, the, uh, the it doesn't have the dia uh, uh, dialysis Correct. solution running to Correct. it. Correct. One is isolated, strictly a, a passive, if you will, hemoconcentrator yes. that we would use in a normal case for fluid removal. And that one, for just example, might be running mm -hmm. off your recirc line and. Correct. And, okay, got Correct. it. Correct. So it. one is like that, but when yeah. you add two, and turn your flow down, which I'm pretty sure is what happened. I'm yeah. not 100 percent sure because, but. I suspect that's what happened. Well, and that brings I'm up a good way. point. They can't see. Yeah. They might have thought the level was low. The pressure might have been up. There might have been a lot of reasons why sure. it got turned down, but I don't know that 100%. Brings up a good point. If you ever have cases where you're going to have two perfusionists, because maybe there's a lot going on. That is mm -hmm. a case where there is a lot going on. People have to have clear, defined roles. Mm -hmm. Yes. You are going to manage the fluid replacement. Mm -hmm. I will manage this. Mm -hmm. And still communication has to occur. Hey, we don't have a lot of volume. I'm going to turn down the flow a little bit. They can't see. Let's do this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There has to be a lot of open communication. You and I just recently did a case together. What was it? A left heart bypass. Yes. And we each had our defined mm -hmm. roles. Correct. I will be doing this. You will be doing that. And we were very, we were laser focused on we're not talking. We're not talking. You know, we that case went smooth. It it was beautiful. That mm -hmm. case went really well. And we hadn't done one in a, it had been a number of years yes. for me. And mm -hmm. so, um, but I think the key was we were not taking this as an everyday case where I can chat to anesthesia and I can do this right. sort of thing. We were very focused for that amount of time, listening to the surgeon, talking to each other, and that was it. But should we not be doing that every case? Now, that's a separate issue. I just thought I'd throw it out there. Well, correct. Um, but even mm -hmm. more so in cases where you've got multiple people doing things. Is that, is that your normal case? I well, think at the end of the day, we shouldn't have done this case this way. Yeah. I think, or, you know. Because if I'm doing a, an everyday case, and of course we know any everyday case can turn into a, a complicated case, mm -hmm. I still am the one who are touching all the things. Yes. 
I know when I've turned down my flow. I know when I've done all of the different mm -hmm. things, and mm -hmm. I don't have to explain to myself, remember you did that, mm -hmm. you know? Well, you know, it's very interesting you bring that up because people like to analogize, and some perfusion companies in the past, you know, tried selling the hospitals on two perfusions mm -hmm. per case, like just like in aviation. Well, you know, I mean, I'm a pilot. You know how many, you know how many PICs, that's pilot in commands, you have in a, in a, in a jetliner? Well, you have one. Mm -hmm. The co-pilot, I mean, the co-pilot will, will ride that plane all the way to the ground if that's where the captain's taking it. Yeah. Because they're trained, you're disciplined, that that's the pilot in command. We have to do whatever they say is what goes. Mm -hmm. Correct. You can suggest, but what they say goes. Mm -hmm. So you really don't have two pilots on the plane. Now, if the pilot dies, the co-pilot would then, of course, assume the PIC or pilot in command role, or it becomes incapacitated in some way. The mm -hmm. pilot becomes incapacitated. But from a uh, flying airplane perspective, if something goes wrong, you got one person in command, and that is such an important concept mm -hmm. in the military, mm -hmm. in aviation, in aerospace, in medicine, perfusion. Um, and that's, I think, one of the big things that we have, we experience, is that a lot of times these patients that we're managing, once they get out of the surgical environment, the suite, surgical suite, you have a whole bunch of people arguing about whose territory it is mm -hmm. and there's not one person who is in charge unless they exert their authority but mm -hmm. they can't be any one place 24 7 so you have to rely on these very complex systems and sometimes you know it's just uh well, it's a uh, 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 problematic but most of the time we just get away with it mm -hmm. well i i've advocated for a long time if you're going to be an ecmo center if mm -hmm. you will you just because that's within our realm, you know, so that's what we see, this kind of problem sometimes. You need to have an ECMO director. Yes. And they oversee all of the other specialties in reference to when a patient is on ECMO. That is absolutely true. Mm -hmm. I agree with that 100%. And getting back to that whole two perfusionist thing, what you really need is a perfusionist who is available to assist if something happens to the current perfusionist. You do not need two people managing a case. That is absolutely a recipe for disaster. Absolutely agree with you, 100%. And you also don't need your other perfusionist, let's say, who doesn't have a case at the moment, or they're, they're the available one for mm -hmm. anything that might come up. Mm -hmm. In the room, talking in your ear mm -hmm. about your case. Now, mm -hmm. if they have a valid suggestion, you're in a problem situation, but you don't need someone backseat driving your no. pump. Well, you know, it, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, you bring up such a very good point. And, of course, you know me. I like stories. You know that, right? Yes. Um, overusing vacuum as an assist device. One reason you use kinetic assist. Glad it wasn't your last case. <laughs> <laughs> me, too, Eric. Yeah. Um, We're so always one you, step away from our last case, though, aren't we? Well, you know, I tell people all the time, <laughs> you can go, when in our profession, you can go from zero to zero in 2.3 seconds. That's just reality, mm -hmm. you know, and, and you may as well just get used to it because that's the job that we're in. So if you're wanting to train as a perfusionist or you are a young perfusionist, you're in training now, just graduated, uh, maybe just within your first five years, you know, you know they, there's an old saying, better to be lucky than good, best to be both. But, uh, you, you know, we are not in a, we're in a full contact sport. Mm -hmm. You know, this is not for the faint of heart. It's very stressful and uh, mm -hmm. it has serious real world consequences. But I wanted to tell this story, if I can, about Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I like telling stories, you know. So, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin were in the Eagle as it was making its first descent to land on the lunar surface. And with about a minute of fuel remaining on the Eagle, um, Neil Armstrong sees that the landing zone that the computer has selected for them is a big boulder field 
and they're likely going to crash. So therefore, this would be a bad outcome for them. Mm-hmm. So he assumed manual control of the eagle, the lunar lander, and started flying it by hand to a more suitable location and touched down on the lunar surface safely with 28 seconds of fuel remaining. 28 seconds from total, absolute, certain death. Mm -hmm. Now, could you imagine if those 32 seconds between this doesn't look good, I don't think this is going to land, this is going to be a good landing spot, to never having before flown something over the lunar surface in a totally different atmosphere and all of these various different little jet nozzles and stuff to control it, having never actually done it, if while those 32 seconds were going and he was flying it, Buzz Aldrin was in his ear, Neil, I think you need to go that way. Neil, I think you need to, I think you need to, I think you need to. Could you imagine what that outcome would have been? It wouldn't have been good. Mm-hmm. No. And I think that that's what you were trying to convey, mm-hmm. is you have to have somebody that's in control, in command of what our microcosm is, mm-hmm. and you can have appropriate at appropriate times a suggestion but not at you know just constantly interfering with the person's ability to think or deal with what they need to deal with unless they relinquish the control correct and then that's a different issue eric adds you are only as good as the last 30 seconds of your last case yep Yep. bingo i get it 100 percent